You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. We are working, working through, uh, as always, the shorter catechism, this shorter teaching tool uh, that we have for our church that is, um, has been in use for hundreds of years now, a wonderful um, document. I have my resources here, and this comes from Jonathan Hooper, gave me this recommendation last week, and I got the book, and it looks great, uh, and so I will recommend it to you. Um, this is a, uh, a basically a family worship guide for not the shorter catechism that we're talking through, but for the children's catechism. So there's a little, little bit about it here. Uh, the children's catechism was written in the 1840s by, um, I believe, a Presbyterian minister, somebody who, who believed in Westminster. So I don't know if he's a minister or a layperson, um, but uh, he wrote this children's catechism to help children who are younger in age with more bite-sized question and answers, because what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's harder for smaller children. Once you start getting maybe five, six, seven, it's more appropriate. But for younger kids, uh, this is a wonderful catechism. And so it's designed to help you walk through this children's catechism with younger kids. Uh, it has memory verses that you can do. And every day it has a short uh, devotional couple sentences of an idea of, of how to explain these questions and aspects of it to children, to especially younger children. So uh, it, it famously starts, instead of what is man's chief end, it starts, who made you? The answer, God. A little kid can, can do that. What else did God make? All things. Why did God, God is the spirit has like, that's right. So it's wonderful. Um, and maybe some of us need to be on this one and then we'll work up to the shorter catechism someday, right? Um, that's right. Or go back to it as you age. There you go. No, but it's, it's neat. Like, what is a covenant, right? Little basic things like that. And you have, you know, four-year-old, five-year-olds uh, saying these things and, you know, older people as well. Um, it's, it's really wonderful. And so this is a great resource. It has the catechism in here and you'll see each week is... is unfolding one or two questions. Um, but again, this is kind of the, the pre-shorter catechism. So I'll let y'all pass that around. Yeah, you can look at it and pass it around. Jeff Kingswood, he's an ARP minister uh, in a sister denomination who's up in Canada uh, as a minister, as far as I know. That's what the bio says. And that was from 2008. So you could be someplace else by now. So um, anyway, just trying to get good resources in our hands as we think about uh, teaching. That's what the catechism is intended to do, to teach children, to teach students, and to teach us. And so we will uh, dive into these questions today. We're at questions 17 through 19. Oh, I have copies of the catechism up here. Um, if anybody needs a copy, if you want to borrow one for the day, or if you want to take one, um, take home, you're welcome. Uh, these are for you. Anybody want... A copy? Anybody need a copy to look at? All right, let's see if we can do this. Hey, well done. Anybody else? Anybody else? No? Okay. <laughs> All right. This is what vacation does to me. That's right. Makes me more fun, I guess, right? All right, so we are, uh, we're looking at three questions today. You'll see the first one is really just an umbrella question and gets us into the content um, of 18 and 19, really. 
So uh, let's look at these. We'll start with 17 and then we'll, we'll just briefly handle this and then move to 18. So question 17, into what estate did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. And this helps us recap where we've been the last two Sundays, I believe. Uh, we've been dealing with this section on sin in the catechism. What is sin? Um, Adam's first sin. And that's what we ended up last time, where we ended last time. Adam's sin in falling in the garden, he was actually, uh, he, he caused all of us to fall. Um, and so we'll deal with the implications of that. But we all sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression in the garden. So we've talked about sin uh, more abstractly. Now we're saying, what does sin mean for us? What are the effects of sin on us? And so the estate is this estate of sin and misery, according to question 17. And so this is, these are the two aspects we're going to look at, the, uh, the now sinful estate, the sinfulness of it, and then the misery of it. So we'll look at these next two questions. So question 18 is about the sinfulness of that estate. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell? So in other words, what does it mean that our estate now is sinful? What is the sinfulness of being a human? What does that mean? And here's the answer. The sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of the whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. All right, uh, classic catechism with lots of phrases, and we'll try to unwind them and make sense of them and put them together. Um, but before we do that, we're talking about the sinfulness of sin, the sinfulness of our estate. And so I want to just read a few scripture passages uh, to help get our minds on some of the, the biblical teaching, and then we'll come back to the kind of theological explanation of these passages. And this is, first, we'll start with Genesis 3, and this is right after Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. This is after God comes to them in judgment. Um, and then he's now coming to, he goes and, and, and judges and puts a curse on the serpent. And then the woman and now the man in Genesis three seventeen. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you are taking, taken and you are dust and to dust you shall return. So there's some explanation of now the curse that's on Adam. We'll deal with the curse particularly in the next question. But the curse that is on Adam and all the human race. Next, we look at Romans 3, and this is a quotation back from Psalm 14, but Romans 3 says this, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. This is the effect of sin on us. Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This, what we were speaking of last time with Adam as a representative of all of us. When Adam fell, we all fell. And this passage is explaining that. Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. You were dead 
and sin. So that the, um, the confession unpacks this sinfulness of this estate. And there's really two main points it makes. Uh, the first speaks of original sin as part of this estate, and then actual sin we'll get to in a moment. But the original sin has these three components to it. And you've probably heard the term original sin before. Uh, this doesn't actually refer to Adam's sin. This isn't the first sin, speaking of, but it's talking about original sin um, for us. Our, where does our sin originate from? And so the confession says it comes from the guilt of Adam's first sin. Uh, this is the, the first thing that's listed here in, in this sinful estate. So we get the guilt of Adam's first sin. We don't simply get a corruption from Adam that leads us to sin. But again, as Pastor Wright talked about last time, we are held responsible for Adam's sin because it is imputed to us. Adam was our representative and his sin is imputed to all of those whom he represents. He is a, as we say, a federal representative, a covenant head. And so Adam's sin is imputed to all of those whom he represents. He represents all who proceed from him by ordinary generation, as the confession says, the catechism says. So we get the guilt of Adam's first sin. While we are in the womb, we are guilty for what Adam did. Before we ever did anything, we are guilty for what Adam did. And um, I, I know Pastor Wright spent some time on this last week, so I don't intend to spend a long time here. Because um, if you have questions, he's the great one to talk to. Um, but if we deny this fact... We, uh, Romans 5 has such a logic that if we deny the fact that Adam's sin is imputed to us, then we can't go along with Christ's righteousness being imputed to us. So if we deny that Adam is our representative, then we can't theologically have Christ being our representative. And so what we're doing, according to Paul's logic in the New Testament, we're protecting the fact that Christ has imputed to us righteousness. Our sin is given to Christ, imputed to him. His righteousness is imputed to us. And so we go back and, and read uh, places like Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 that talk about these realities that in Adam, we sinned. We, his guilt is imputed to us. So we have the guilt of Adam's first sin. And the catechism goes on to say the loss of original righteousness. The, the word here in the confession or in the, the, the catechism is the want of original righteousness, the lack of original righteousness. So we lose this original righteousness that we are given. Uh, if you remember question 10, God created us, humankind, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And so we lose that righteousness in which we were created. We were created without sin, without moral stain. And so now the sinfulness of our estate is that we don't have that perfection any longer. We don't have the sinlessness any longer. We are no longer righteous in this original, uh, the way Adam was righteous in the garden. And then this last piece, and we'll, we'll talk about this, this more, we'll, we'll pause in a moment, is the corruption of the whole nature. So our sinfulness leads to our whole nature being corrupted. And oftentimes we call this total depravity, our whole nature. Now, total depravity doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be or anything like that, but it means every part of us is fallen. The fall didn't just affect one aspect. It didn't just affect uh, our soul and not our physical bodies. It didn't, uh, it's not saying it, it affected maybe our mind, but not our emotions. All of us is affected Every part of us is affected by the fall. It has corrupted every part of us. 
Uh, and that's where we come back to Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. And so our desires, our loves, our will, our minds are all broken by original sin. So we'll stop there with original sin. And um, I'm sure there's comments, um, questions here. All right. I don't mind. I don't mind questions. Bring them on. Um, great. So this is, uh, this is critical to our understanding of sin. Sin is not just things that we do. We're getting there. But sin is, is, a, is a state that we are born into. And uh, the question, are we sinners because we sin? Or do we sin because we're sinners? Okay, try to get your mind around that. It takes a minute to think, to think about that straight. But when we are born as sinners and therefore we sin. That's our, our state when we are born. When we were um, knit together in our mother's womb because of Adam's fall, we are all fallen and we all have this original sin. So, um, yes, total depravity. There we go. Uh, and then the second part that question 18 lays out says together. So the, simple, uh, the sinfulness of this estate is original sin together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. Actual transgressions is not saying like there's theoretical versus actual or anything like that. It's just saying the sins we personally commit. This is the sinfulness of our estate. We now commit sins. Okay, great. People will refer to newborn babies as being innocent. Right. And they are not. Mm -hmm. But is what they're referring to, they haven't committed. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, when people talk about, oh, this innocent, sweet little baby, so wonderful, and all this, you know, the, the kind of, I'll say Calvinist in the cage stage will want to say, no, that baby's evil and in sin, and, you know. Um, <laughs> And it's true, right? It, it is true. Um, but we know what, what they're saying. Like, it is sweet. This child hasn't actually committed a transgression yet. But we know the desires of the heart are evil. And we see that, you know, expressed at a very, very, very young age, even in children. Uh, so we don't want to deny that. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think we will colloquially speak about children in that way. Um, and they haven't um, committed a sin that we can see yet. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't take long. Um, it does not. But, uh, but, I, but I think your point's well taken. You know, we'll, should we speak of children as innocent you know, cherubs or whatever? Um, I don't think that's the most helpful way. But yes, they have not sinned, especially in grievous, grievous ways that we see others um, doing. So does that, does that answer your question? Does that get at it? Absolutely. Okay, okay. Yes, yes, that's right. And these are important distinctions. And that's one of the great things that um, theology can help us do is give us these categories to make these distinctions. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's exactly right. So then there, so these actual sins. Um, now, what is an actual sin? We've already gone, to, gone through the question of what is sin? Sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And these are all things uh, that we talk about, things, our sins, anytime we don't obey God's law. But I want to just highlight something that when we went through the, through the confession of faith that was highlighted there, but I want to bring it up again because it's important in our day and age. That the confession section, uh, chapter six, section five, uh, says that, all motions of our corrupt nature is sin. 
All motions from this corrupt, sinful nature is sin. And it's an interesting way of speaking, but he's talking, the confession's talking about any desires that arise up out of this sinful nature, our, our, our fleshly nature we are born into. All of these desires are sin. So these motions, these desires themselves that come up from within us are sin in and of themselves. It includes desires and thoughts and even internal temptations that are motions of our sinful nature are actual transgressions. So even if we don't commit it. Yes, that's right. Even if we don't murder somebody <laughs> physically to have a hateful thought of somebody is in and of itself an actual sin. I think you're in trouble. I think I'm in trouble. I think we're all in trouble. We're all murderers. Right? We're all adulterers. Um, this this uh, lowers the bar for what sin is. Um, because we are, uh, we are a very sinful people in all parts. Even yes. fleshly restraints are sin. I don't murder. Why not? Well, yeah. It's a selfish that is a great point. Why do we not murder? Sometimes it's not because I don't desire to. It's because I don't want the consequences for murdering. We don't even, we don't even restrain ourselves from sin for godly reasons at times. That's a, that's a great point. It's a wonderful point. We're getting at our motivations, our heart. And that's what the confession is calling us back to in the, in the, in the uh, catechism. That it's the heart level that we have to begin with. Our desires, these even motions that arise out of our sinful nature. Even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's right. Martin Luther would say, I need to repent of my repentance. Yours, you said it in a much better way. But I need to repent of my repentance because oftentimes my repentance is compelled by sinful reasons. I don't repent uh, to glorify God. I repent to get out from under his judgment or something. I, I feel bad about myself. But I don't repent for his glory. And so we're filled with actual sins. Um, Yeah, we'll, we'll stop there. Um, other thoughts, but, but this, anyway, yeah, I'll stop. Any other, any questions there? Other comments? Yeah, Eric. Uh, before we move on, uh, getting back to the uh, scripture you have from Genesis, it seems to imply that uh, Adam is to now toil, uh, but prior to the fall, what was mm -hmm. the idea of toil? Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. Good question. Ask that in a moment. We're going to come back and hit that in just a second. Uh, we're, let's move to question 19 where that becomes more center uh, of the focus. So let's go to, to 19. So 18 was the sinfulness of that estate. And we ought to sit and think long and hard about that and meditate on that because we are, we are great sinners, but we have a greater Savior. And that's, that's the goal for all of this. It's not just to sit and wallow in it, but it's to look at our Savior. And then we come to 19. What is the misery of that estate whereinto man fell? So our estate now is sinful, but our estate is miserable. Answer, all mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. So things aren't just sinful, 
things are miserable now because of sin. And, and they name a number of miserable realities that we face. And the first one is the biggest one. It's loss of communion with God. And this is easy for us to pass over often, I think, as we think of ourselves, think of our faith, think of um, doctrine, um, think of Christ and the atonement. We think about forgiveness of sins often. But what's the purpose of our sins being forgiven? What's the purpose of us having the righteousness of Christ? The purpose is to restore communion with God, is to, uh, to restore a fellowship with God that we lost in the fall. This is what we were created for. This is what Adam and Eve were created for. And they enjoyed to experience his warmth and goodness and the justice of God. And this, this is where, we didn't read this, but uh, continuing down that line from Genesis 3 earlier, after God pronounces the curses, uh, Genesis 3 says this, Therefore, the Lord God sent Adam out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they were kicked out of the garden. The garden was God's dwelling place where God met with his people. They were kicked out and said, you cannot come in here to commune with me any longer because you are in sin and you've lost communion with me. And then, of course, from there, we see this wonderful grand story of God, by his grace, drawing us back into communion with him. And one of the great pictures of that is the tabernacle and temple with all of this imagery like the Garden of Eden. And even the, the cherubim, right, they're, they're put here at the outside of the Garden of Eden, um, defending it, not allowing anybody to come in. And we have cherubim on the veil of the temple saying, don't draw near. You can't come closer to God's presence. But yet, yet God says, Yes, I will allow my priest to come in on behalf of the people to commune with me and to, to be able to um, share that with all of my people. So we, we see this, this wonderful imagery in the temple, in the tabernacle. I'm sorry, I went off on a little tangent there, but it's, it's showing us this picture. What we've lost is communion with God and God is restoring that through redemption, through ultimately his son. Uh, Ephesians 4 says, they, unbelievers, are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God. I love that phraseology. Apart from Christ, we're alienated from the life of God, but God restores us to that fellowship of life with him through Christ. And it leads us really to, to ask that wonderful, all-encompassing question of what's the point of life? Why are we here? What is man's chief end? Is to glorify God and enjoy him in communion with him in fellowship with him. So we lost this communion. And there at the garden, they were cut off from God. And now we, we now have hope of the gospel. God came in after, you know, pr proclaimed the, the promise of the gospel. And, and Adam and Eve were saved by faith, trusting in this, this gospel. And they were reunited uh, in communion to God. But, but it's different now than it was before the fall. And it will be greater than it was before the fall when Christ returns and we're confirmed in everlasting life. Um, but we do now get a, a glimpse of what this communion will be like now that Christ has reconciled us to God. So this loss of communion is, is huge. We're born into having no communion with our creator like we were created to be. Uh, I'll, I'll pause there. Um, comments on this one, communion with God. It's a great book, um, John Owen, Communion with the Triune God, a wonderful book to explain a lot more of the facets of what, is this, what does this look like? What do we mean often when we talk about this? So highly recommend that book. So communion with God changes after the temple, the curtain is torn. That's right. So 
That's right. Yeah, so the question is, um, after the, the, the temple veil is torn, right? The, the cherubim really like come down uh, when Christ dies on the cross. And so what's the difference with, between our communion with God that we have now and Old Testament believers? What was their communion with God like? Um, and I would say primarily, and I haven't thought much about this, so shooting from the hip a little bit, so that's always dangerous. Primarily, uh, their communion with God was mediated through the priest. And so that was um, God's appointed way of communing with his people, with the priests who did the sacrifices, who did these prayers, who did these public um, duties uh, to represent to the people what communion with God was like. Did they have personal communion with God? They did, but it was more attenuated than ours is today. It's, it's something less. I don't know how to explain it. I haven't thought about it much. Um, but ours now, we have direct access to the Father through Christ. Christ is our high priest. Christ is our mediator. Instead of that priest being that figurehead mediator for us, we have Christ himself. Um, so I don't know if that, that doesn't really get at some of the, the details you're asking for, is it? Okay, so well, that's a great question. I'll, I'll think about that some more. But any, any comments on that, though? Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. She went to the temple or tabernacle at that point, and she went to the tabernacle with her sacrifice, and that's where she prayed to God. Um, and I don't want to say Old Testament believers couldn't pray um, apart from corporate worship, apart from the temple, tabernacle. And maybe I'm wrong there, um, but I don't want to say they couldn't, but this is where God called them to draw near to him was there. And now we're called to draw near to God anywhere. And now particularly the gathering of the people, absolutely. But we're now able to draw near to God anywhere. I think of Daniel um, in exile. He was praying from his upper room, right? So you could. Yeah, there you go. Thank you, David. So you, you could and you were able to, but there was something particular about that, bringing your sacrifice, coming to the tabernacle, temple. Um, that's right. That's a, that's a good example. So loss of communion with God um, is part of the misery that we have now. That's why we're miserable, because we don't have communion with God like we were intended to have. Uh, the second is the wrath and curse of God. So the wrath is God's anger. God's anger is upon those who are sinners, who are, who are not saved by grace through faith in Christ. God's wrath is upon them for their sin, for the original sin that's theirs and for their actual sin. God's wrath is upon them. God is angry because he hates sin and he cannot dwell with those who are uh, defiled in such a way. Uh, John 3, 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God's wrath is upon those who, who are not in Christ. And so then the second piece is here, wrath and curse of God. What is the curse of God? And I think uh, we have a couple things we can think of here. One is the curse of the garden that, that Eric brought back to mind a few moments ago. The curse in the garden, the curse of toil, the curse of life being difficult, the curse of childbearing, the curse of these things. Now your existence in this world will be difficult. It, the sweat of your brow will not be filled with joy as you were designed, it was designed to fill you with joy, but it will no longer fill you with joy because life is hard. You are now in sin and there's now thorns and thistles. Um, and so ask your question again, Eric. Well, just what's the relationship between man's fall and then 
Yeah. And I just think of like, I go to plant a tree in my yard and I dig the shovel in and the first thing I hit is a rock or a root and then it's like, oh, this is so much harder than I want it to be. Right, right. Yeah, Adam, Adam was called in the garden to work and to keep, uh, to fill the earth and to subdue it. So there was clearly a lot of work um, with Adam's original calling in the garden, in his original state of righteousness. It, but filled fill with joy. That's right. Uh, and, and part of this was literally to take the, the, the garden of Eden and to expand it to the entire world, to, to overcome um, the wild unknown out there with this beautiful dwelling place of God. And that was part of their job that was essential to their being in the image of God called to, uh, to exercise dominion over the entire world. And so work was a part of, of our existence from the beginning. And so work is inherently a good thing. Toil, um, well, I won't use the word toil because that's what we use after the fall, uh, but work, hard work, sweat is a good thing. We were meant for it. We were meant to raise children. And that's all part of this original mandate given to Adam and Eve in the garden. But then that's where the thorns and thistles enter in after the fall. And that's where uh, childbearing becomes difficult. Raising kids becomes difficult. Not that it wasn't difficult before, but now there's this brokenness to it. And we see, uh, I think I have some of these passages here written down in my notes. Um, We see, yeah, um, in Romans 8, creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, Adam and hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption. So creation itself isn't bondage to corruption because of sin, because of this curse that is now upon all of creation because of Adam and Eve's sin. So there is now, the earth is different. The world is different. The animal kingdoms are, are different. Uh, plant life is different now after the fall. To what extent? I don't know. I, I can't judge that. There's no way of knowing because we weren't there before the fall. Uh, but it is different and work is toilsome. Uh, work is difficult. Work is frustrating. Um, but we must kind of step back and realize it's essentially good, but the frustrating part of it is a reminder that we're in a broken world, a world broken by sin. So I don't know, Eric, you want to push back or follow up more questions there? No, so I, was, uh, I just heard some people say, you know, Yeah, and that's right. And, and the question is, to what degree? I'm not sure we can say. But that's right. Creation is under this curse as well. Ernie? Yeah, don't, don't you think he was a lot smarter and his Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. That's right. I, I think you're exactly right. Yes. That's right. He was more efficient. Uh, it was, yeah, in every way. You're right. Exactly. Better and much smarter. Uh, that's right. He does it all for the wrong reasons. What's that? He subdues the world for the wrong reasons. He's lost his purpose. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now that when we try to subdue the world, we try to subdue the earth for our purposes, right? To make me great, to make a name for myself, like the Tower of Babel, right? Subduing all creation to make a great name um, instead of subduing it for God's glory. And that was the intent. Uh, that, that was, that was uh, what Adam and Eve's uh, driving desire was to be. And they failed. 
So this wrath and curse of God. Um, let's see, there, there's an ongoing curse as well. Um, but this more relates to the sin uh, aspect. Galatians 3 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So all of those who are um, under, under the covenant of works and without a Savior in Christ, they are under a curse. Um, they are judged under that curse. Um, so we have the wrath and curse of God, the miseries of this life. And that's what we've been talking about. Life is hard. Life is miserable sometimes. Uh, and I, I don't say that in a definitive way, but we experience miseries in life. Uh, tragedies, difficulties, frustrating work, um, incompetent people. Um, <laughs> all of this stuff, right, Ernie? Uh, all of this is part of the misery of life, is it not? Life is difficult. It's not how it was supposed to be. And the divines here writing the, the confession, the catechism, are telling us, look, the misery of life is because of sin. It wasn't made this way. It wasn't intended to be this way, but it's been corrupted. And all of these miseries are because of sin, sin entering into the world. This is our estate right now. Um, and we could go on and on about all kinds of miseries. Um, but any, anything, questions? What's that? Make us really miserable. That's right. Any comments here? This is not how it was intended to be. We can remember that as we experience our own difficulties. And then we have this next one, death. Um, death itself is what they say. Death itself is a result of sin. Our now sinful condition, our miserable condition will result in death, period. You're not getting out of it. Death is happening. It's only been a small number of people. That has not happened to them. Even Jesus Christ died for us as a curse on our behalf. Death is coming because it is the consequence for our sin. Uh, Genesis 2, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's the punishment for sin, the consequence for sin. And we often explain that Genesis 2 passage to say, well, okay, Adam and Eve didn't die uh, when, they, when they sinned. So what does this mean? And we'll often say, well, this is talking about spiritual death. Um, this bondage to sin and all these kinds of things, losing communion with God, it's talking about that. And yes, it's absolutely, that is part of the death. But I don't want to stop there and say that uh, physical death was not promised on the day that Adam and Eve died, because I do believe that's part of this death. It's not just a, a spiritual death, no longer having communion with God, having being subject to these miseries and under the curse. But I do think God promised on that day, you will die. And Adam and Eve, when God came to them, in the wind of the day, we talked about that, right? God came to them in judgment on the wind of the day to execute his judgment upon them. They were ready to die. They knew the execution was coming for them, not just spiritually, but physically. They were going to face death. And God held that judgment in abeyance, not because he wasn't being faithful to his word, but he had grace upon them in that moment. We call this common grace, where God's holding his judgment of death in abeyance for a time. That sword is still hanging overhead, but by God's grace, he's giving us time, why, to repent and come to him. And so we see even this, this promise of death is physical and spiritual. God still now is operating in grace, with, with grace towards the entire world, allowing us to come to Christ in faith. 
So I, 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 I highlight that because I think we often do short shrift to that verse. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's not just spiritual death. Physical death was coming to him. But God said, no, I'm going to be gracious and not execute the judgment yet. You will die. But before you do, come to Christ. It is. That's right. It is. It is. That's right. It, it is part of the miserable nature of our life. And, um, you know, the Romans has some incredible passages about how Christ has now conquered death for us. Right? Death, where is your sting? A grave, where is your victory? Because ultimately, all of these, these, this list of horribles that we're reading through, all of these are taken away by Christ. All these are gone and no longer we are subject to these because of Christ. Now, yes, we're subject to death now, but ultimately the point of Romans is death, where's your sting? Because ultimately there's a resurrection coming where we can enjoy that communion with God in heaven for eternity. That's coming. But we still go through this process of death and that is still um, a very difficult thing for us to go through. And I think for the Christian um, death itself is, it can be terrifying and different Christians have, um, different relation to that idea of their own death. Um, but how we die, I don't know if anybody's not afraid in some way of how they're going to die, right? Cause you think of all the terrible, horrible ways that it could happen and people are, are, are scared of that and we're afraid of that. And so that is part of this misery that we're under saying, oh, death will come. How is it going to come? I hope it takes me in my sleep, right? That's what we all want. Um, and may, may God be so kind to allow us to do that. Um, but death is coming for us, even though we await that resurrection on the last day. Uh, Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. And it's just restating Genesis 2. Sin leads to death. Disobedience leads to death. Death is coming. And this is, again, part of the miserable condition now that we are in sin. Did, did you say something else or another question? That I didn't, okay. Okay, that's a good good observation. Yeah, Ward. Uh, someone had asked earlier about the difference in prayer between the Old and the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Is it possible there's something connected with death in that we are guaranteed an audience? And when you look at the pattern of life of the saints in like Acts, they're constantly in prayer. Yeah. Whereas in the Old Testament, you tied a rope on the priest, right? On the day of the that's right. Because maybe a sacrifice wouldn't work, maybe he would do something wrong, and you'd have to pull his corpse out. And when you think of him as federal representative of the people, it's more than just his corpse coming out, if that were the case, right? That's so right. That's right. We have a guaranteed audience now that can't die. That's right. That's a great, um, a great observation. Because of Christ's resurrection, it affects now how we can approach God. I think that's what you're saying. Because Christ died and lived, we can approach God differently. He rose from the dead, and we now have a living intercessor who cannot die, who intercedes and mediates for us perfectly in the way that the Old Testament high priest could not. Um, and we see all these things about the temple and the, and the feasts and the sacrifices that, that point us to that reality. And I think that's a good observation. All right, the last one, the last point here in question 19 we, uh, by our fall, lost communion, by our fall, um, experience all these things, loss of communion with God, but it ends with this kind of exclamation point. We're made liable to the pains of hell forever. Uh, Matthew 25, uh, 41, Jesus says to those who do not trust in him, he says, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
Uh, Matthew 25, later in verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment. And we see this eternal nature of judgment. It's eternal nature of the, the punishment for sin being meted out over and over in Scripture. I'm going to read some passages to you just so you can see all these places where it talks about eternal torment, not a temporary torment, not a torment that ends with uh, the, the, the snuffing out of your existence, but eternal conscience, conscious torment. Daniel 12, verse 2. Mark 9, 44, 46, 48, 49, Luke 16, 26, John 5, 29, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, Revelations 4, Revelation 14, verses 10 and 11, chapter 20, verse 10, uh, and chapter 20, verse 10 and 15, chapter 21, verse 8, and there's many others speak of this horrible state of the pains of hell forever, this eternal conscious torment. Uh, that is awaiting for all those who die in this sinful estate. Uh, and the miseries of this life will be nothing compare, compared to these pains. Um, I appreciate the way that the, um, the, 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 the catechism was drafted in this understated but heavy way. The pains of hell forever. It's not going to gory details. It's not talking about the gruesomeness and we should consider these things. But it's reminding us of this reality in a very sober way. And this is the end. And when you're here, there's, there's no hope. There's no sense of, yes, I'll pay off my, my sins and then finally I'll get to go and be, God, and be in God's presence. No, you are in eternal torment forever and ever. It's a sobering reality. But the justice and holiness and righteousness of God demands it. And so this is one of those realities for all people because of our estate of sin. This is the future of those apart from Christ. And it makes the gospel message more urgent because, you know, a lot of people have made the miseries of this life kind of work, especially in our day and age. We have air conditioning. We have, you know, electricity. We have these great things that make the miseries of this life a little less difficult. But the pains of hell forever. There's not going to be air conditioning, running water. You're going to wish for the good old days, but it makes the gospel proclamation message more urgent. People must hear this because there's no hope apart from Christ. And we can rejoice because this is our future apart from Christ. We've been saved from this unto full communion with God and life everlasting. And I love, uh, you know, I love the next question. Obviously, we're not going to today. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Heaping up all these terrible things. Did God leave us to perish? Short answer, no. We'll come to that next week, Lord willing. Well, let's pray and we'll close and we'll um, head into worship. Father, we thank you for these sober reminders of apart from Christ, our estate. But we are grateful that you've given us the Lord Jesus Christ, who's rescued us from our sin and from our misery. And we pray that you would enable us to look to him more and more as we, uh, as we experience the miseries of this life. As we toil under the curse, we pray that we would look to him and give you praise for this great salvation that is ours and that we get to experience full communion with you as we were created one day when Christ returns. So Lord, may Christ return quickly and humble us, O oh Lord, as we consider these things. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Go in peace.
Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.com.